right. Well, hey, good morning, Calvary Church. Uh, it is great to see you guys. Thanks for being here. If you're newer to Calvary, my name is Peter. I'm one of the guys on staff. Um, and if you're visiting and checking us out and you want to know more about who we are, there is a bulletin, uh, a piece of paper. And within that, there's a little tear-off slip that you can drop in one of the brown offering boxes around and you can... Uh, give us your information or ask any questions. If a pastor can pray with you, just kind of help answer questions on your journey. If you want to know more about Calvary, if you've been at Calvary for a while and you want to take another step to uh, plug into our body and to grow as a disciple and to be part of what we're doing to reach and impact other people, there's a way to you, for you to fill that out as well. So I want to call your attention to that. And like I said, what we want to do, one of the things we're striving for here is to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so we have this summer some opportunities as a body to grow together and to connect, and those are jam-packed in that amazing bulletin. And so one of our mottos we started was, bring a Bible, grab a bulletin, bring a Bible, grab a bulletin. So if you grab a bulletin, you're going to know what our summer schedule is. You're going to know when there's programming for your kids on Sunday, when there's not. One of the things that we're going to be doing throughout the summer starting today is have some opportunities just to hang out as a body through some donuts and through some coffee. Every dentist in town loves us when we do the donuts. It's just spectacular. Um, And then something else to let you know about that's coming up on Sundays in the summer is we have, over the past couple of years, taken a few weeks in the summer to bring all the adults and high school students and students together, whoever really wants to be there, and we've just kind of looked around and said, man, what's a question in our culture that people are wrestling through, and let's spend a few minutes as a church talking about that, right? If people are talking about cultural things on social media, if people are talking about cultural things when you're in your office, in your carpool, on the soccer field, a lot of times churches don't talk about those things. And so what we've done, I don't know, for three or four years, one summer, we talked about racism and what does the Bible say about racism and how should we as a church approach that. One summer we carved out which hill to die on in terms of theology and then we wove into a conversation about how do we use this, how does this inform different political issues, and we will never tell you who to vote for, what to vote for, but as Christians, like, what do we do? How do we weave that into this? And, and this summer, what we're going to do is starting next week, we're going to take two weeks to talk about an issue that when we did our parenting class, man, a lot of parents asked about when we said, what are some things you want to know about on a survey? That's what they filled out. And so what we're going to be doing for the next two weeks is be talking about the issue of gender dysphoria, right? What does this book say about issues of gender? And also, based on what the book says, how should we, as people um, who are called by Jesus to love, how does that inform what we do as a church, as a body of believers? And so It's in the culture, and it seems that we should talk about as a church, and if you've been to any of our other conversations, um, man, we see what the Bible says, but it's never to cast stones. It's always just to try to figure out how do we process these issues and live in light of this. Like every issue we've always talked about at Calvary, uh, this is not an issue that we talk about merely academically, because there are some people who uh, have sat on blue chairs who they wrestle with this. It's not just an academic issue. There's people in our church and probably in some of our relationships who the issue of transgenderism, what does that mean? It's something that's real within some of our families. And so um, we realize that as we approach this. So that's coming up and wanted to let you know that for two weeks, starting next week, 
We'll be talking about that. And then last thing as far as building a body. <clears throat> Tomorrow night, the rumor is, for the dudes at Calvary Church, there is going to be a grill, there are going to be some hot dogs, and there's going to be a cookout uh, for the men, right? Men's night, an amazing thing we do to try to gather some guys together. And so tomorrow night from 6 to 8, there's going to be a men's night cookout. And so if you're a guy newer to Calvary, if you've been to Calvary forever, if you want to meet some dudes, if you just want free food. <clears throat> and I always say this whenever we talk about a ladies' event, right? Whenever there's a ladies' event that is not for the dudes to come to meet ladies, and so, ladies, if you want to come and meet a you know, good Christian dude, this is for the dude. So we'll, you know, um, but for guys, we'd invite you to come out to that and uh, look forward to that. So we're going to jump back into our study in Revelation and, so before, and continue it. And so before we do that, I'd ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and um, <clears throat> all of us in this moment are in all sorts of different places. And there's different things in our story that are going on. And so I pray this morning for the parents in the room who they're just in a challenging season trying to figure out how to parent their kids and to navigate that. I pray for your encouragement. I pray for your presence. I pray for your grace. For the marriages in the room, Father, that are just in a hard spot where there's conflict and uh, there's tension. I pray that you, Father, and your Holy Spirit will draw those hearts together and give patience and clarity and resolve for those people in the room this morning, Father, that you have blessed them and there's amazing joys that they're happy about and that it's a season of just your grace and your kindness. May they be filled with thanksgiving to you because that is an evidence of you opening up your hand and showing kindness to them. And for the people in the room who, for whatever reason, uh, are processing things that are challenging. Um, we know that you are near to the brokenhearted, and I pray in a particular way of your grace and through your spirit that will be true this morning. Father, it is a privilege to open up your word and to hear from you, and so I pray that your spirit will be with us now as we do this, and we know this time is not wasted because you work through your word. And so will you do that in our lives to help us learn more and then also to think about ways that we can be transformed more like you. And we pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you are checking us out, what you may not know is we typically at Calvary open up the book of the Bible and we go through the Bible kind of paragraph through paragraph and work our way through one book. And when that's done, we start another book of the Bible. And uh, almost a year ago, we started in the book of Revelation, and we started in the book of Revelation not because, as I've said a lot, because any of us think the world is ending, although it could be. I got a little worried with that, those fire, those smog the other day. <clears throat> no, I'm not. I'm really not kidding. I was driving to New Haven to go hang out with some friends, and it, the sky is orange, and there's this mysterious, like, smoke, rain, mist substance coming from the clouds. And there are these eerie sounds on the highway. And I thought, dude, I mean, I missed last week with, like, the bowls and the seals or something. But th I, this is not good. But we all survived that. So I, we didn't do this because we think the world is ending, although Jesus could come at any time. We're doing this because it's a book of the Bible that, as Christians, a lot of churches don't work their way through, and it's a book that I've never preached through, and so we decided to kick this off, and we've been through it, again, like I said, for almost a year, and um, 
We'll be finishing up here in a month or so. And it's an interesting book, and we're taking a certain perspective that may or may not be correct, but our, we think it is. Our perspective is that we're in a passage of the book that's looking ahead to future things. We're taking a futurist perspective that these are describing things that are yet to come. And we're in this chapter today, chapter 17, that is incredibly symbolic. I mean, if you were just to open up the Bible and had never read anything in the Bible before, and you opened up to Revelation 17, oof, you'd be like, what is going on? It is filled with symbolic language, and that symbolic language is gritty, and it's, it's, it's raw, and it's earthy symbolic language. But despite the unique symbols and images, it is addressing an issue that impacts us every day. And underneath the symbols and underneath the imagery and underneath the metaphors is something that every single one of us in this room, no matter where we are spiritually, it affects us and it impacts us. And the topic that it has to do with today is the topic of what do you think? What do you believe to be true? And that's what we're going to unpack and what we're going to see, uh, the impact of that this morning. So we're going to be in Revelation 17, Revelation 17, if you've got a Bible or device. And as you, we work our way through it this morning, we're going to work our way through three questions. And here's the first question. First question is this, what is being judged in this section? Because we're going to see pretty quickly up that something's being judged. What does this have to do with the future? And then we'll end our time with some more just, okay, practically. This morning, this Sunday, what is all of this imagery, what of all these truths, when I leave this door today, how does it practically impact me where I am? Three questions. What's being judged in this section? What does it have to do with the future? And what are the characteristics of this worldview uh, that's being discussed? So if you got your Bible, Revelation 17, verse 1, and the very first verse gives us the big idea of what this chapter is about. In Revelation, what we've seen, and maybe next week we'll have a little chart for this, but there's, there's certain chapters that kind of work through the chronology of what's to come, right? Chronological events. And then we've seen several kind of parenthetical chapters that explain some things that are going on behind the chronology. This is a parenthetical. This explains that as the chronology of Revelation is moving on, that there's some realities and some things going on and a big thing that's going to come to the picture in the future. And, and here's how the chapter starts. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. What we're thinking about in this verse, what this verse is all about, is the judgment of something, right? The judgment of something. And in order to figure out what's being judged, we are going to take a drink of that coffee this morning, if you have it, because we are going to work through symbols and imagery and metaphor, and we're going to figure out what is all of that about what this is, help us understand what's being judged. But as we do that, there's another verse that we got to keep in mind, and that's a few verses later, eight verses later, as an angel is talking to John, what he says is this, hey, John, everything that I'm telling you, and everything that I'm asking you to try to figure out, it calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom. And for you and me this morning, <clears throat> what we're going to unpack together, man, th these are challenging things to understand. 
And, and we need to approach it with this attitude of, of being wise, and we need to also approach this with this attitude of being cautious and being humble. Because we're going to do our best to understand what it means, but we could be wrong. And like a lot of what we're working through, we're approaching this very humbly, very cautiously, saying there's a bunch of different ways to understand different things. We're going to make our best effort to understand it, but are we 100% right? Probably not. Because when you look at prophecy in the Bible, there's not a whole lot of people who 100% of the time understood it 100% correctly. So we're being wise and cautious and humble as we walk into it. And so the first question to think about, right, is what is being judged? What is being judged? We saw in the first verse that, right, the judgment of the great prostitute, is this an actual prostitute who's going to be judged? Is it literal? Should we understand this as an actual person? Is it something symbolic? Well, a few verses down, another verse gives us some guidance because another verse helps define who that prostitute right, is. And it says this about her. On her forehead, meaning the forehead of the prostitute being judged, and again, we're starting to see here that this is all symbolic, right? Not literal. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. In that culture, in that moment, um, the prostitutes, it was typical of them to have something tattooed on their head or some sort of something stuck on their head to help identify the brothel or the religious temple or whatever with which they were associated. And what's going on here is we're getting some guidance about how to understand this prostitute symbolically. And what we're seeing is is that the prostitute is a symbol for something, and Babylon is a symbol for the same thing. So there is this something that is being judged, and that something is being referred to in two different ways. Symbolically, it's being referred to as a prostitute, but then there's other insight that that also, the thing being judged, is being referred to as Babylon. Babylon. It's this description of Babylon being judged. And we saw this a couple of chapters ago, this idea of Babylon and and how Babylon is going to have a downfall. And there were several ways that we can interpret and understand what this Babylon thing is, right? As we're answering this first question of what's being judged, here's some different ways that people understand Babylon and the prostitute, because we got to figure out what's being judged. And some people understand it to be the restored literal city of Babylon. There are some people who say that the literal city of Babylon will be rebuilt and um, that that's what's in play here. There's other people who will say that this refers to the past Roman Empire. Uh, You may remember from our first day together, we use this other amazing word, word called preterist. Preterist, okay? And the preterist view says that the book of Revelation is describing everything that happened to early Christians from Rome in the early church era. And so people of that ilk think that this actually describes the past Roman Empire. There's some, we're not taking that view, but just so you know it. Some people think this is being, uh, describing a restored future Roman Empire. And then what we took the last time when we looked at Babylon that we're going to take this time is this idea of Babylon, that's also being represented by prostitute, is it's a symbol, and it's symbolic for worldviews, systems, beliefs, priorities that are opposite to God's. 
Throughout the Old Testament, there are tons of different places that refer to the Israelites being stuck in Babylon or the spirit of Babylon or the attitude of Babylon. And many of those references refer to this, something that is anti-God, something that is a belief, a lens through which you look at the life and the world that is an anti-God perspective, an anti-God view, an anti-God teaching, an anti-God truth claim. And this is what previously we said Babylon stands for, and it's what we're going to say that Babylon stands for here. And what we see through this and what we see throughout the Old Testament is this, that throughout history, there have been two camps according to the book. According to the book, there have been two broad buckets and there have been two broad camps. One has been God's truth, and the other bucket is any other truth claim. There is a worldview that is based on God's truth, and there are worldviews that are based on all sorts of other different things. There are, throughout the Bible and in our story and throughout Revelation, only two big buckets right? God's truth, the worldview, the lens of looking at things through this, and the second bucket contains every other worldview, every other lens, every other truth claim. And in a far more trivial, trivial way, every day you and I kind of have two buckets, right? Where we put things in one or the other bucket and we decide which one is better. There's the amazing bucket of the Yankees or the Red Sox, Right? One is good, one is not good. Every day we have to decide, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? I have to confess something. I almost texted one person in this room today. You know, as Jim shared a few years ago, I'm on a journey myself, and I'm walking this journey with you. And I came, man, I was Mr. Dunkin' Donuts when I got here. And, and a few years into being Mr. Dunkin' Donuts, and I mean, I even said that Starbucks was a sin. <sighs> and then... It was a cold, rainy fall day, and I said, I feel like I just need something a little more robust. So I put on a disguise, and I stole a car, and I went to Starbucks trying not to be recognized by anybody, and I got a Starbucks coffee, and it was good. And then some point when I was probably talking about a sermon about being authentic, I confessed to you that I had to be authentic and tell you I kind of like Starbucks now, but something's happened to me. Here's what's happened. I borrowed a friend of mine's pickup a few weeks ago, and it was amazing. And I turned on country music, and I had my boots on and my trucker hat, and the windows were down, and I felt like a man. <laughs> and I looked on the floorboard of this pickup truck, and you know what I saw there? No. I saw a not a cigarette. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I saw a Dunkin' Donuts napkin, and I thought to myself, maybe men in pickup trucks listening to country music with trucker hats and boots on go to Dunkin' Donuts. So I went to Dunkin' Donuts, and it was really good. <laughs> I'm on a journey. I don't know what to do. I'm just being honest, right? Every day we put things in buckets of what is better. We, we put things in buckets of Red Sox, Yankees, Dunkin', Starbucks, reading a real book, reading a digital book, trivial things, but then every day, every single one of us, when we're deciding what is right, what is true, what is better, 
We do the same thing with a worldview. We do the same thing with truth. We have one bucket where we have what God says, and then we have another bucket where there's all sorts of other things to believe, and you and I, daily, no matter where we are spiritually, choice by choice, action by action, we look at those two buckets and we say, okay, I think this one's actually better. I think this one is what guides me. I think this one is what is true, and I'm going to think in accordance with that, and I'm going to act in accordance with that. Right now, whether we know it or not, no matter where you are spiritually, no matter whether you think this is true, whether you think it's myth, every single one of us, the decisions that we made yesterday, we made decisions based on what we thought was true. We made decisions last month based on a certain worldview, based on a certain way of looking at life and having that shape us. Whatever decision is out in front of you, that you've been talking to your friends about, that you've been praying about, that you've been throwing on social media, asking people to give you guidance about, you're going to make that decision based on the bucket that you decide is better and you decide is true. And what the book is saying is there are two different buckets. There is God's truth and there is everything that is not that. There is God's worldview, God's approach, and everything is not that. And what the book is saying is at the end of the story, God's truth is finally going to win. God's truth is going to win. And what the book is saying in that first verse is when this moment comes, right, all of that stuff in that other bucket is going to be judged. All of that stuff in the other bucket, according to this, and you're free to say, well, that's crazy, I don't believe that. That, that, you can believe that or not. But what the book is saying is all that other stuff is going to be shown to be a counterfeit and not reliable and not dependable and not the right lens through which to guide things. Because what the chapter tells us as it starts off is, hey, I want to let you all know some things about, verse 1, the judgment of, right, the judgment of the prostitute, the judgment of every worldview, claim, philosophy, approach that is in a bucket, not in God's bucket. So that, that's kind of what will be judged. But then the question is, well, that's interesting, Smith. We could probably have a nice philosophical, apologetic sermon now on truth. But, like, I thought this was a series in Revelation. So what is all that, if anything, what does that have to do with Revelation? What does that have to do with the seals? What does that have to do with tribulation? What does that have to do with the Antichrist? I'm glad you asked. Because question two is that question, what does this have to do with the future events that we think are going to come. Based on our approach to take a futurist view of the book of Revelation, what does this have to do with the future and the events of Revelation? There are three connection points, okay? So three ways that we're going to pull from the chapter that show how this reality about other truths being judged and God's truth prevailing, how that connects into the events of Revelation. So first way we see it, we keep reading, and it says... Um, this. So come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. I don't know if I have a slide for two, but I'm going to read it. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drink, drunk. And then here's kind of the first connection point, verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names 
and it had seven heads and seven horns. Woo! Now, so let me just say, this is, this is a footnote for free, okay? This is weird sentence, okay? And we have to, this is a weird, does, does anybody think this is not a weird sentence? Okay, this is a bizarre, I mean, it's bizarre, like what? Like a prostitute sitting on a beast, and yet, I believe that this very weird sentence is contained within a book that I think is absolutely true. A very weird sentence contained within a book that I think is absolutely true. And here's the way, reason I bring that up, nothing to do with my notes, but I think we need to be careful sometimes because when we hear belief systems of other religions, sometimes what Christians do is they say these words, well, that's just weird, how can anybody ever believe that? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever read anything of another faith tradition that is not a Christian tradition and a story, and you're like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard? Well, maybe it is. But people of other faith traditions can read this and say, that is the weirdest thing. We don't determine truth by whether it's weird or not. Okay? And I think sometimes as Christians, we just need to be humble, quickly just making a comment that can never be true because it's weird because we have things that are challenging and hard. And so what is all of this language talking about? Well, we've seen this phrase before, scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. And in a previous chapter, what we decided and what we saw was that this refers to this yet future figure who's going to be a human leader, symbolic language to describe this human leader who is anti-Christ. Okay? There is going to be a leader who is going to do it his way, who is going to rally all these troops together, and this leader is going to have an agenda and a plan that is opposed to Jesus. He's actually going to start a battle with King Jesus when King Jesus returns, and over time, that figure who does everything against Christ is referred to as the Antichrist, the human leader, right? And so what we see here is that this woman is symbolically sitting on the Antichrist, Okay, this image of a woman, a beast, who's the Antichrist, and the woman is sitting on it. I am scared of horses. Horses are big. I think they're smarter than me. There was a moment when one of my children um, had this deal they were doing where they were working at this um, farm, and they had all these chores, and I decided I would go help them because I would get to ride the gator around the farm and feel really cool. Man, I'm noticing a truck farmer motif being run through here. But one of the things that I would help my child do, because that child, this was part of their duties, clean, muck out the stalls. Mucking out the stalls means you take a pitchfork or a fork and you clean out the refuse of the horse stall, which means you have to get into the horse stall when the horse is there. I have arrested bad guys at 4.30 in the morning. I have had someone pull a shotgun on me. I have had chaos happen. I don't know if I've ever been so scared as when I've had to walk into a horse stall because that horse was like, bro, one kick, and it is game over for you, right? And, 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 but here's the deal with horses, right? When a person sitting on a horse, if they know what they're doing, they control that horse, 
right? A person sitting on the horse, that rider, they are controlling that horse. And in the same way, that horse is supporting the person who's sitting upon them. The person on the beast controls the beast. The beast supports the person who's sitting on them. And what this suggests is it suggests is that this posture of false teaching sitting on figuratively the Antichrist is this idea that this anti-God worldview, this other non-God bucket is what is going to be controlling this false leader. It's going to be the worldview, the lens that they're looking through, and this false leader is going to further it and propagate it and support it. And the first connection point is this, that the Antichrist, again, we're approaching this wisely, we're approaching this humbly, because we could be in understanding it incorrectly. But what position we're taking is that the Antichrist will be guided by and will support an anti-God worldview and belief system. That the Antichrist will be guided by, will support an anti-God worldview and belief system. There's another connection point in here. And to understand the second connection point, we've got to work our way through a lot of symbols, okay? So, so here's we go. The Antichrist is described as having seven heads and ten horns. You may remember that from the other verse. Seven heads and ten horns. What is that all about? We talked about that quickly a few weeks ago, but this text helps us understand it. We've got to understand it to understand the connection point, to try to understand what this chapter is telling us. And so what are the seven heads that symbolically this beast has? Man, if this is the first Sunday that somebody's walked into a church for the first time, <sighs> it's crazy stuff. All right. Verse nine through, at the, verses 9 and 10 help us explain what the, seven, um, <clears throat> what the seven heads are. And it says this. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Well, that's not so helpful. There are also seven kings, five of whom are fallen. One is, the other is not come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So the seven heads refer to these seven mountains. Interestingly, Rome was a city known for being surrounded and built upon seven mountains. And what we see is that these um, seven heads are symbolically representing kings. Okay, There's a lot of different ways to understand that. Some people will say that, again, this refers to uh, Nero and the way that he treated Christians during the tribulation, uh, during the early church, we're not taking that view. But people in that view will say, well, Nero was in the line of these seven kings. Um, what people in the position we're taking will just say is, look, there were seven key huge leaders who had power and ruled empires, and the Antichrist is going to be one who will come in that line and have the same sort of power. Then we need to understand what this next language is about the horns, okay? And this is looking to the future. And later on, the next couple of verses explain what the horns are. Um, and the ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So even if the horns are talking about, ro I mean, the, the other things are talking about um, what has happened, this is something that's in the future, okay? So in the future, there's going to be ten kings who have not yet received royal power. 
but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. What this seems to reference under our futurist view is that there at some point in history is going to come a ten-nation coalition. We talked about that before. What it seems to be saying, if our view is correct, there's going to be a ten-country coalition that aligns together as one mega superpower. And at the tip and the point leader of that superpower is going to be this Antichrist leader. And that Antichrist leader is going to be the one who is driven by and supports and furthers and acts according to this anti-God worldview. Um, in the 70s, there were all sorts of seminars about what 10 countries this was going to be. And if you paid $19.99, everybody could tell you with certainty what they were. They were wrong, right? Now, there's people uh, who are speculating about what these 10 nations are, 10 countries. Could they be right? I don't know. They could be. Um, but we don't necessarily know the exact identity right now of the 10 countries. But one day, it seems they're going to be gathered together, a 10-country coalition led by the Antichrist, ultimately opposed to King Jesus. And, and here's the second connection point is this, that this anti-God worldview symbolized by prostitute in Babylon for a time is going to be linked with a multi-country coalition that is led by the Antichrist. So in the perspective we're taking, one leader opposed to King Jesus disregards God's truth. All these other philosophies, worldviews, that's what he's guided by, that's what he's supported by, that's what he acts according, and he will be the tip of the spear for a 10-country coalition. And as leader of that coalition, influencing that coalition, that coalition itself will be making decisions based on worldview, philosophies, systems, truth claims that are completely opposed to God. And that will all be fueled. But then there's one interesting thing we see happen about this. Because um, <clears throat> I think there may have been, was there like a Marvel movie called Marvel Civil War or something like that? Okay. One person saying yes, so I'm going with it. Right? I think there was. I think there was because I was watching this movie during COVID. And I'm like, oh no, do I like Iron Man or do I like the people that are fighting Iron Man? It was very confusing. But what, what, what we see is about to happen is that the anti-God worldview and this anti-Christ and coalition, man, for a minute, they're infused together. But there's going to be a little break in that. There's going to be a little civil war that happens in that. Because look down, this is the third connection point, and then we'll get to, well, what does this have to do with us today? Um, but verse 16, and the ten, this is talking about later on, <clears throat> the ten horns that you saw in the future, they and the beast will then hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. What's going to happen is for a little bit, that, that false worldview, that false teaching, that's going to help propel the Antichrist. He's going to be all about it, if we're correct. He's going to lead this country in it. But then there's going to come a time where the Antichrist says, hey, I got, I, I got something else for you to believe. I got another truth system I'm trying to give to you. And when we put the other pieces of the text together, what that truth system will be is, hey, people, you've got God. Then you have this other bucket that I, the Antichrist, have fostered, but everybody, I'm giving you now a third bucket. And the third bucket is not God, it's not the middle bucket, but the third bucket is now worship me. 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 And that somehow through the sequence of events, if we're 
even close to understand this correctly, the Antichrist will be opposed to God and God's truth. And he'll foster this, but then there'll come a time where he moves away from that and he says, you know what, it's me now. I am replacing the bucket of God, and so y'all worship me. And when he does that, he's going to walk away from the philosophy and the worldviews that got him here, which is the third connection point that the Antichrist's allegiance to this worldview, if we're understanding the symbols, will end. Will end. Lots of confusing imagery and symbolism, and we've taken our best efforts to try to figure it out and to put some pieces together and to say, how does this seem to fit into the sequence of events in the future? But if all we do is leaving here with having some notes on how to understand a few verses, but we don't think about, does this have anything to do with us today? Then we're missing out. And so the question is, what does all of that have to do with what I do this afternoon when I leave this place? What does all of that have to do with when we're sitting here on the blue chairs? What does all that have to do when we go to school tomorrow, if you go to Trumbull High for your last day of exams, or when you do whatever, right? What, what's the relevance for it today? And so we're going to think about the relevance as we answer this third question of what are the characteristics of the worldview that's being discussed? What are the characteristics of this worldview? And then from that, we'll think about what are the attribute, what is the impact for us? Okay, so here's the first thing we see. We've already read this verse, but verse 1 shows us something interesting. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, which we know is anti-God worldview belief systems, <clears throat> who is seated on many waters. The cool thing about this chapter is it explains so much of this imagery because another verse in verse 15 tells us what these many waters are. Here's what Viff said. The waters that you saw where their prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and language. The imagery is this false teaching anti-God worldview that is impacting countless, countless, countless numbers, multitudes of people, all people, in, you know, lots of people in lots of nations. This is an image of so many people being impacted and being affected by this anti-God bucket of belief systems. Here's the first characteristic, and then it gives us a caution. The first characteristic is this, that this anti-God worldview influences countless numbers of people. There are countless numbers of people who are like, nope, God bucket, not me. The other bucket with everything else, I'm all in. Here's the caution. Just because a lot of people believe, think, or promote something does not necessarily make it true. Just because a lot of people believe, think, or promote something does not make it true. It does not necessarily mean it's false because there's a lot of people who believe Christianity, but this in and of itself is not a litmus test of whether something is per se absolutely true. I, uh, who here, anybody here likes the Yelp? Do you not Yelp? I don't mean like a coyote. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Okay. 
Because there's a church consultant coming to help figure out what the next pastor should be like, and I'm meeting with them, and I got to be able to tell them that our congregation knows what Yelp is, right? We got we to gotta be able to do that. Okay, Yelp is not like when you step on a dog's tail and it goes, yep, well, that is a Yelp. But Yelp is this amazing app, and you can look at Yelp, and you can type it. I did this this weekend. Uh, we ran up to, um, my wife and I got away for a few hours just to run up to see the little further North Long Island Sound. We wanted a cup of coffee, and so I Yelped coffee shop, right? It's an app that you can Yelp. And you can see the number of people who have reviewed that restaurant and the number of stars they give. 99% of the time, man, I'm going to the place that the most number of people have reviewed, right? I am making my decision based on the most number of people who tell me that that is true. But truth Man, figuring out what is true is not a Yelp review of a coffee shop. Just because a lot of people believe, think, or promote something does not make it true. It doesn't necessarily make it false, but this is not the driving force. Just because all of my friends are like, well, bro, this is what I think. Well, that's what they think. They're entitled to their opinion. It's good to know that. But I shouldn't determine truth based on, you know, a numerical survey. Because what we see is countless people are going to buy into this false truth. How have you determined what is true? Every single, all of us think something is true. We might think the book is true. We might think a different worldview is true. We might think that we're the arbiters who are like, we are, ah, that's true, that's not. But every single one of us in this room, there is something that you have decided is true. How have you made that decision? How have you made that decision? How are you determining that issue right now? Because right now, as always, we're confronted with all sorts of thoughts about what's true, what's right, what's not, blah, blah. And how are we running those issues through our mind right now? And what this just warns us is the most number of people doesn't necessarily win. The most number of people doesn't necessarily win. What's another characteristic, the next characteristic we see as we continue to read on? With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual morality, meaning the leaders of the earth have symbolically committed uh, sexual morality with this prostitute, with this false worldview system. And here's the takeaway um, from uh, that, right? That this anti-God worldview influences many leaders. The characteristic in the future is that this anti-God worldview is going to influence many leaders. And here's the caution. Every leader is shaped and driven by a worldview. Every single leader is shaped and is driven by a worldview. And every single one of you in this room today is a leader because every single one of you has influence on somebody else. Every single one of you has influence on somebody else. And leadership is ultimately influence. And so you're a leader and you're shaped by a certain worldview. What shapes how you lead other people? What, what shapes how you guide other people? What shapes how you interact with other people? Man, Jesus' leadership worldview, you know what it was? Service. 
service. I mean, decades ago, there was, and it's interesting how in churches there's pendulums and there's swings, and, but decades ago, everything was about servant leadership, servant leadership, which is valid. And it was about that because Jesus' leadership style was to serve, to give of himself for the betterment of those people that he was serving. And so the question for us is whatever environment you're leading, that you're influencing, are you using your leadership to serve other people or are you using the people that you serve to serve you? Are you using your leadership to serve other people? Or are you using those people that you are leading in order to serve yourself? And those are two totally different approaches and tacks. And then, as a leader in your family, if that's kind of part of your story, Man, what, what belief system and what worldview as you as a leader in your family are trying to pass on and are you trying to shape and influence? But what's, what's, what's this for me? What's this for you? What's driving you and your leadership of others? Are you serving out of security as a leader or are you trying to use people out of insecurity as a leader? The very next clause shows us another characteristic in verse 2, and it says this, And with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. In other words, what it's saying is there's this idea of right, these people who are being influenced and connecting, engaging with this false teaching, it's as if they're drunk. It's as if they're drunk. When one's drunk... What's happening there? I know some, maybe, we, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> Not from personal experience, but um, I've seen a ton of drunk people in my different story. I mean, and man, you know what's happening when somebody's drunk? Man, they, they don't, they're no longer in control of themselves. They're being controlled by something else. They're stumbling over here. They're stumbling over there. Something else is controlling them. Something else is leading them. They're not thinking clearly. Their thinking and their actions are under the influence of something else. Here's the third characteristic of this false teaching. The tendency it can have is that this anti-God worldview, it can control us. It can control us. What these people, right, it, what this shows is this belief system is impacting what they're doing. And no matter what belief system we have, what we believe impacts what we do. What we believe impacts what we do. Every single choice that you and I have ever made can be traced back to something that we believe. And I've stolen this line from a dude named Tozer, but it, and I've modified it, but... but Man, the most important thing that we can ever think is what we think about God because it determines everything that we do. The most important thing you will ever think is what you think about God because it does determine everything that you do. And here, here's what's also in this, right? This is another sermon for another day. But if we want to ultimately, we can manage behavior all day long. As a parent, we talk about you can manage your kids' behavior. You can threaten them or you can bribe them. 
And you can get them to leave the play place one of two ways, right? What you want is your child's heart to leave the play place because they love you and they respect you. And they, when you say, child, it's time to leave the play place, they willingly come. I had to pepper spray children to get them to leave the play place, okay? But, but we can bribe them. And man, if your parenting style is bribery, oof, right? What we do, we can manage behavior and we can manage our own behavior, but ultimately, based on this, if we want to change behavior, we've got to change our thinking. And that's not psychobabble, gobbledygook, right? Man, what the Bible says is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed, be shaped more like Jesus by renewing, changing what you're thinking. And man, these false worldviews, these anti-God worldviews control us just like anything does. What we believe impacts what we do. And the most important thing we'll ever think is what we think about God because that determines what we do. It does. And some of us get ourselves in a whole lot of mess because we believe in God. We're Christians. We know Jesus. But we have moments in our life when we think we know what to do better than he does. Or we think our way is going to yield a better result than trusting God in his way. It's a caution. And then the last thing about this in verse 4, and we'll end with this. Verse 4 says this. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Man, and I'll invite the worship team to come up here as we end. There's a lot of omission. This, this looks good, right? It's like, whoa. Like, if you saw this pop up on your Instagram as an ad, there'd be this person in purple, scarlet, beautiful clothing and pearls, and you'd be like, wow, that person looks amazing. That looks awesome. That looks spectacular. But then there's this little thing behind it, but, and she's got a golden cup, and you're like, whoa. But inside of that, underneath that, man, there's abominations, and there's impurities, and there's emptiness, and there's brokenness. It looks really good on the surface, but underneath it, man, it, it, it's not as good as it looks. It's a counterfeit beauty. And here's the last characteristic and the caution of this, is the anti-God worldview is externally appealing and attractive, but hollow and dangerous at its core. According to the book, the anti-God worldview is externally appealing and attractive, but hollow and dangerous at its core. And the caution is this. Just because something sounds right or fair or good does not necessarily mean it's true. Just because something sounds right or fair or good does not necessarily mean it is true. Lots of symbolic language that we've tried to work through to understand Okay, what's being judged here? What does that have to do with connections to things in the tribulation, the period of time? And then what we've also pulled is, hey, four different characteristics of this false teaching and, and challenges to us about what to do with that. And, and all of us just have to figure out, man, it, we're, what is true? 
And if you're in a place this morning where you're having challenges with that, anybody in our staff would help, love to help you. But and, also, and I'd also tell you this. We've given to people at Calvary this amazing free resource called Right Now Media. Right Now Media. There are countless numbers of video-driven studies and teachings and lessons working through these very questions of what is true. And if you have a particular interest in learning more, like, I don't know, is creation true or is evolution true? Is the resurrection true or is it not true? Is this book actually true or do people make it up? How do I just understand what's true? There are countless resources at your disposal to learn about it. Man, take advantage of it. Let's not be a church where you guys just come and sit on the blue chairs and just expect the pastor to just like spoon feed you Michelizzi's Italian ice. Okay? Man, let's be a church who, you don't eat just one meal a day. Maybe some of y'all do. You're on that intermittent fasting diet, keto, whatever, right? But, but man, don't make coming here just the one meal a day that you have with God's word. You got to be self-feeding. You got to be self-feeding. And if all you're going to do is come to a church and say, well, pastor, just tell me what's true. Eh, we'll, we'll tell you this is true, but man, you've got to get in the game. You've got to get in the game. And I was talking to somebody this, uh, uh, this week, and the conversation was, with, every, with lots of different things going on, how do Christians get equipped? And I think one problem for Christians is we just don't really know what's, what we think is true. And then what happens is we don't, think, we don't know what is true and we get threatened by other people and then we just get angry because we don't know. And then it's just we're just going to try to yell louder because we think that's going to win. Man, you have so many opportunities to learn and grow as a disciple. There are so many people who the resources you could get on this would die for that. Man, take advantage of it. Feed yourself and be people who chase after God. Let me pray. We're going to sing this amazing song affirming that the hope that is coming, because ultimately Revelation is a book of hope, and we'll keep walking towards that hope next week together. Father, thank you that you've revealed things to us. Uh, Thank you that we don't have to guess. And Father, I pray that uh, we will be people who have a hunger to know what your word says and to be people who are shaped by it. And Father, this morning for people who have a huge decision in front of them, who are believers of you. I pray that your truth and that your word will permeate their hearts and it will shape and guide what they decide to do and they will have peace amidst that process. Thank you for all the hope we have of one day King Jesus coming back and that one day all will be well. Thank you for your love, Father. Amen.